please turn your Bibles once again to Hebrews chapter 13. <clears throat> if you've been paying attention as we've been studying the book of Hebrews, you're, you may notice that uh, I skipped ahead a bit this morning. You may, be say, you may say, hey, wait a minute, we haven't finished chapter 12 yet. What gives? Uh, and that's a valid question. It deserves an honest answer, and here it is. Our elders are concerned because there seems to be some spreading discontent in our congregation right now. Uh, in, in, in fact, it appears to us that there are individuals, we don't know who, that are comparing notes, and those grievances are spreading and increasing rather than being resolved. They're talking to one another rather than talking to us, the elders. And so we hear about things secondhand, which makes it very difficult to resolve whatever issues might exist. Now, very honestly, I don't know when it started, how it started, how far it's gone. Uh, but as elders, we've been talking and praying about this. And this past Wednesday, as we discussed it, and as we prayed, and, and we're just seeking wisdom, what, what should we do? <clears throat> the conclusion was, we need to say something. We need to address this in some public way. And I said, well, in just a few weeks, I'm going to be at chapter 13, verse 17, uh, which we just read a few moments ago. And the consensus among the elders was, we probably shouldn't wait a few weeks. So let's just go ahead and jump ahead and do it this morning and address it sooner than later. And so, we believe that what we are concerned about is important enough to go ahead and address it right now. <clears throat> now, I don't want to be alarmist. I don't want you to think, oh my, our church is in serious trouble. We want to keep it from getting in serious trouble, right? Uh, but we don't want to hide from problems and pretend they don't exist either. Uh, we want to provide faithful instruction from God's Word in, uh, in, in such a way that we can address problems and we can teach and, 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 and exercise responsible behavior in the church, which is the body of Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, let me say what the sermon is not. My daughter came up into my study last night and said, Mom, told me what you were preaching tomorrow. I hear you're taking everyone to the principal's office. And I said, no, that's not what this is. It truly is not. It's not a trip to the woodshed. Uh, I'm not going to turn the sacred desk, as it's been called, into a bully pulpit. That would be inappropriate. Uh, I'm not here to defend the elders. That also would not be appropriate. Uh, I'm not here to put people in their place. That would not be appropriate. That'd be an, an abuse of the sacred responsibility God has given to us to preach His Word. My goal this morning is to provide biblical instruction on how we ought to conduct ourselves in the house of God. That includes our responsibilities, elders, to you, the members of this church, as well as your responsibility as members to your elders and your pastors. Now, if you recognize this morning that you've spoken improperly, that you've wrongly harbored a negative attitude, I want to urge you, appeal to you, listen to God's Word. Don't, don't, you know, what does God's Word say about that? And I pray that God will guide us and give us faithful direction. Uh, I hope also recognize that sincere believers struggle. And sometimes that's why people are, are, are sharing things. They're, they're just struggling. And and I want to recognize that with compassion. But I, I hope and I pray that we'll renew our commitment to follow God's Word and how we ought to love one another, how we ought to make every effort to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, as Ephesians 4 tells us, and how we ought to behave with one another in the body of Christ. Now, let me say this quickly. There are some who've come and talked to us and expressed concerns directly to us, and graciously so, and that's been a blessing. We appreciate that. 
even though sometimes those are hard conversations, but we want to be approachable. We want to respond faithfully and biblically. And so my appeal to you this morning is, listen to what I say, but listen to how I say it, why I say it, and don't just immediately assume he's just up there to defend and be defensive. No, that's really not my, my, my purpose here. I want to encourage you, be like the noble Bereans. They heard Paul preach something they'd never heard before, and they every day went and studied the Scripture to see if what Paul said was true. Don't take our word for it, in other words. Search the Scriptures. It's a faithful treatment of God's Word. So, four points. They're really in the form, first three are in the form of questions. Number one, what, is the, what does the Bible teach about authority within the church? What does the Bible teach about authority within his church? Secondly, what's the biblical responsibility of faithful elders to their church members? It's important that we recognize that we have a significant responsibility and we take it seriously. Thirdly, what's the biblical responsibility of faithful church members toward their elders? So, what is the elder's responsibility to you and what's your responsibility to the elders? And fourthly, your attitude and your behavior toward the elders has a powerful impact for good or for ill. And we'll see that. That's actually behind the title, a profitable pastoral relationship. So, what does the Bible teach about authority within the local church? There's a general principle of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses, uh, or excuse me, 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14, where Peter writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor supreme or governors are sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. There is a general principle that we are to live in submission to God-ordained authority structures. And that's first and foremost, Jesus is our supreme authority. And we are under his authority, the authority of our great captain and king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And every one of us is called, first of all, foremost, to submit to his lordship. And secondly, we're under the authority of the word of God. I have a good friend who went to a church that had been steeped in traditionalism for a very long time. And uh, there was something of a rift in that church over the issue, is the Bible true or not? And those who wanted to uh, affirm the inerrancy of Scripture uh, basically won the day, and the others actually just, just left peacefully, and they went and started another church. So here these people are saying, we want a pastor who affirms the truth of the Scriptures. So they called my friend who actually had grown up in that church. And he found he was at war with a congregation that said, we believe the Bible's true, but they did not yield to the authority of Scripture. They said it's true, but then when it it challenged deeply held opinions and behaviors and practices in their lives, they they bristled. It's one thing to say, to affirm inerrancy of Scripture. It's another to yield our lives and our hearts to its authority. And that's true for elders. It's true for leaders. It's true for members. It's true for every Christian. But then there is the authority of biblically established leadership roles. And each one of us is called to, uh, to submit to the appropriate authority in the relationships in which we find ourselves. Children, you're to obey, submit to your parents. Parents or, 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 or wives, you are called to submit to your husbands. Not as doormats, not when they, if, they, if they tell you to do something sinful, but in all things lawful, you're called to submit. And that's not what this message is about, so I won't elaborate, but employees, you're called to submit to your employer. How many times have I heard employees say, they don't pay me enough to do that? Well, why'd you accept the job? You knew the, you knew the requirements going in, and you knew what to pay you going in. You don't get to determine your job description. Or citizens to the government, as First Peter is primarily focusing on. But in our case, 
church members to the elders. And let me hasten to say each elder is a church member. It's one of the things I love about the Baptist church. Every elder, every pastor is a member of the church. We are also accountable to the eldership, just as every member is. And that's the clear meaning of Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, different churches have different traditions. Our understanding of Scripture as a Baptist church is that we're congregationally led, or ruled rather, which means final authority rests with the congregation. We as elders can't make big decisions on our own. We must submit those big decisions to you. But the basic day in and day out operation and the shepherding of your hearts and souls is the responsibility, it's a purview of the elders and your call is to obey and submit. Now, we're subject to the congregation as a whole, no question. But individual members are called to be subject to the elders and to the faithful ministry of God's Word. We're going to talk about more what that looks like as we go forward. Don't get wigged out about that. Uh-oh, what's he going to say? I promise we'll get to it. But let me say this. Authority is always limited to the sphere in which is it established. An employer should not be calling you at home when you're not, uh, if your job description doesn't call for you to be on call, he shouldn't be calling you and telling you what to do on your free time when you're not on the clock. If you're on salary, it's different, right? And in the same way, elders' authority is limited to the purview that God has given us within the local church. I have seen churches guilty of gross, extreme authoritarianism. Elders who claimed absolute authority over the lives of their members. Kids being raised up in the church, being taught you never question the elders. And I've seen how destructive that was. I've seen families torn apart by this kind of absolute authoritarianism. It's terrible. Human delegated authority is never absolute. It's always limited to the sphere in which God has established it. And so, God-given authority never gives anyone, husbands, parents, pastors, elders, the right to be tyrants. There's an authority, but it is a delegated authority. And we're accountable to God how we use it. And it's limited to the purview in which it's established. In 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. It's interesting, Peter could have pulled rank and said as an apostle. But he calls himself a fellow elder. He's like, I'm in this with you. As well as a partaker of the glory that's going to, be, going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Five things very quickly in this text that I think are very important. First of all, elders are called to shepherd the flock of God. We'll talk a bit in a moment about what that means. We're called to exercise oversight. The word overseer, episkopos, means to oversee. Epi, over, and skopos is to see. And so we're called to be overseers. We're called to serve from a willing heart, not under compulsion, not grudgingly, but with an eagerness and a willingness and a, and a sincere love for God's people. We're forbidden from domineering over the flock. In other words, we don't insist on our own way. You do this because I told you to. That's, that's totally wrong. And then finally, we're called to be examples to the flock. To me, that's one of the most challenging parts of being an elder. Paul says, follow my example as I follow Christ. And I read that and I cringe sometimes. 
because the, the, the challenge is so daunting. But we're going to talk more about those responsibilities. But what I want you to see is that authority is real, it's biblical, and it exists within the sphere in which God has established it. It's always to be subject to the clear teaching of God's Word. Now, authority, quite frankly, is a bad word for many people in the culture in which we live. We are in an anti-authority sentiment in our culture. And the mere mention of authority sparks a, a, a latent distrust in many people's hearts. When I stand up and speak, submit to the authority of the elders, some, the natural response would be, there must be a wrong motive here for him to say that. Rather than, this is God's word. We're to learn from it. There's a latent distrust to authority. And that problem really goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, Satan said to Eve, uh, did God say that you couldn't eat of any tree? And she said, oh, we can eat of any tree in the garden except for this one. And, and Satan says, no, you're not going to really die. God just knows if you eat this, you'll be like him. You'll know good from evil. He is holding out from you. He is using his authority over you in a capricious and self-serving way. And Eve fell for it. And sin entered the world, and death and destruction entered. And from that day till this, we have wrestled with God-ordained authority. There are elders who abuse their authority for sinful and selfish purposes, no question about it. But the suggestion of Satan is all authority is suspect. All authority is self-serving. But the reality is Scripture teaches that properly exercise God-ordained authority is a great blessing to those who are under that authority. It should be a place of flourishing. In his comments, Philip Hughes writes this. He said, Christian leadership is intended for the advantage of all, not just for the advantage of those who hold positions of authority. And good and successful leadership is to a considerable degree dependent on the willing response of obedience and submission on the part of those who are under authority. I can remember a seminar I went to when I was in student government in high school. Uh, I'm the chief, but we're the Indians. Uh, and, and being a, a leader that no one will follow is a very uh, frustrating and discouraging and, and, quite frankly, fruitless endeavor. But in this relationship, there's a mutual responsibility. And it's mutual, and it should be healthy. Those in authority must lead and shepherd with humility and with faithfulness, and those under that authority must submit with respect and also with humility. The Bible's clear. Authority is a good thing, not a bad thing. It's essential to the health of any organization, any institution, any family, whatever. But it must be exercised faithfully and biblically, and it must be yielded to, submitted to, respected in the same. So that's what is the Bible teach about authority? It's a blessing, not a curse. Secondly, what's the biblical responsibility of faithful elders to church members? In this text, it tells us there are two primary responsibilities. We are to keep watch over your souls. That's the word of the word, the meaning of the word, overseers, as I said a moment ago. We're not only called to oversee the operation of the church. The Constitution talks about having the the, the government of all of the church's uh, activities and ministries and such are under the oversight of the elders, but we are called to oversee you, your spiritual growth, your health, your walk with the Lord, your development, your spiritual progress. 
God's Word calls us to teach, to exhort, to encourage, to instruct, to, and sometimes even admonish or rebuke if necessary. And we're to do so authoritatively. If you think about that, let that sink in for a minute. In second, excuse me, in Titus chapter 2, it's one of my favorite passages of Paul's writings. He speaks of the grace of God that's appeared to all men. It brings salvation. And he said it, it trains us. And that word is gumnazo. It's, it takes us to the gymnasium, training us to deny uh, 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 or renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we look to the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the grace of God, the saving grace of God has this impact on our lives, not just we're saved and we have a fire insurance policy and we can live like we want. It trains us in the gospel to renounce ungodliness and to pursue after holiness and righteousness. And then it goes on and speaks of uh, the work of Jesus. He, it says he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So he didn't give himself to redeem us simply from the penalty of sin, but from lawlessness, how we live. We're not to be a law unto ourselves. We're to submit to God, to his word, and to God-ordained authorities that he's given to us. And it's very interesting, the next verse, that's Titus 2, 11 to 14, verse 15. The next verse says to Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I think that makes some of us a little uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable, to be honest with you, right? Uh, and that doesn't mean we stand up here and go, you better not disregard me. You know, the, the saying goes, the man who continually reminds people he's in charge probably isn't. <laughs> uh, we're a volunteer organization. And submission is voluntary. But it's obedience to the word of the Lord. And Titus, Paul instructs Titus to teach these things, to instruct these things with all authority. In fact, in the very next verse, and there's a chapter break there. You go into chapter 3, the next verse says this, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Does that mean simply secular authorities, or does it mean every legitimately established authority under God's providence? And the answer is B, children to parents, wives to husbands, employers to employees, members, believers to their elders. And I would again add elders to one another because we're members as well. So there are two things that we need to conclude from this passage. First of all, living upright, controlled, uh, godly lives, self-controlled, godly lives includes submission to the rulers and authorities God has placed in our lives. That's outside the church, that's inside the church. Living upright, godly lives includes faithful submission to God-ordained authorities. And secondly, elders are instructed to declare and exhort and to rebuke with authority. In fact, Paul says, with all authority. That doesn't mean it's absolute over every area of your lives. It's not. But in the areas where Scripture clearly speaks uh, and, and places you under the oversight of the church, it's the elder's responsibility, not just our right, our responsibility to teach, to declare, and even admonish when necessary. That doesn't mean use the pulpit as a bully pulpit. Absolutely not. 
But there are times we have to have difficult conversations. And we need to be willing to do so. And God's word calls you to be willing to listen in the same light. In our life, in our doctrine, in our obedience to the word. That's where we're called to exercise this oversight. And Paul says to, to Titus, don't let anyone disregard you in your faithful exercise of this ministry. Let no one disregard legitimate biblical authority. Now, let's be honest. I don't really like being exhorted. <laughs> I don't like people correcting me and showing me where I'm wrong. I, you know, it's, there's pride in me that goes, you know, oh, man. We don't like being rebuked. And, and, and in fact, something inside of us might even rise up and say, what gives you the right? All oh, that's flesh. That's sin. That's pride. The reality is we're members of one another, and we ought to speak to one another in love, but speak the truth in love, and sometimes that truth is difficult. And we need to speak it in love, and we need to listen to it in love. There's a delicate balance when an elder is to speak, to exhort, even rebuke with all authority that we cannot, we must not do that in a domineering fashion. We must do that in a winsome fashion, seeking to win people back rather than drive them away. But we have to take seriously the admonition, let no one disregard your authority. Now, please don't think, Pastor Jamie is being really self-serving right now. It's really not. It scares me. It scares me to think about the level of responsibility God is placing on us. And I hope as we take that seriously, I hope you will as well. That's what's involved in exercising oversight of keeping watch. But the second thing is that we must give an account to the Lord. Now, as pastors, as elders, we're accountable to God for what we do in our ministry. But I've heard pastors who respond to any kind of criticism, even when they're wrong, saying, I'm not accountable to you. I'm accountable to God. I don't have to listen to anything you say. That's wrong. That's arrogant. It's unbiblical. We are accountable to the Lord without question. But there is a mutual accountability to one another. And our primary, as elders, our primary accountability is to the other elders. We are accountable to them immediately. And that accountability, I promise you, is exercised. And we do challenge each other. And we do correct one another. And we do appeal to one another. And we do respect and love one another deeply. And we actually submit to one another. It's important for an eldership to have that, that dynamic and we do, by God's grace. But the account that we are to give to the Lord is, how did you shepherd the flock that are placed under your care? Were you a faithful shepherd for the souls to whom you were called to care for? Did you teach them faithfully the full counsel of God? Did you protect them from the wolves and from false teaching and from carelessness about sin? Did you apply God's word faithfully and practically and wisely? Did you live as an example of faithfulness and of godliness before the people? Did you provide biblical counsel when it's needed? 1 Thessalonians 5.14 tells us we're to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to be patient with all. That's one of the most important personal, practical ministry verses in the New Testament. Admonish the idle. The ones who are out of line need to kind of be confronted to encourage the faint-hearted, those who are, are faint, who are, who are, are, are fearful, who are uh, overwhelmed. They need somebody to come alongside and encourage them. You don't ream them out. 
to help those who are weak, those who just are barely hanging on. Help them. And be patient with all. And my word to you is that is our commitment to you. And I would ask you, would you also accept that commitment to us? Because we sometimes can be idle or faint-hearted or weak. And we need those very same ministries and patience. This is a huge responsibility. It's not one that we can take lightly. And it is difficult and it's demanding work. And let me say here, there's a whole lot of things that our elders do that you never see and never hear about. We don't play golf three days a week, I promise. Scott's retired, he might. No, I'm kidding. But the question, are we doing it perfectly? Of course not, absolutely not. Announcement went out in our, in our um, Friday notes, if you read them, that, that we are beginning this new shepherding plan within our community groups. It includes home visits, hopefully twice a year. And Pastor Mark has been working with the elders on this for several weeks, quite a few weeks, before any of these issues ever arose, by the way. It's not a response to, oh my, we got to do something. It's the right thing to do. And to be honest with you, in the 40 years I've been here, I, I came to this church as, on pastoral staff September of 84, almost 40 years ago. We have never had a structured plan to do this. We've talked about it, but we've never actually done it. And to be honest, that's not right. We, we should have done better, and we're aiming and endeavoring to do better, and we're telling you about it, which means we're going to hold out of trouble if we don't do better, right? We're giving you that expectation. So you should be hearing from the elder or the community group leader of the group you're in about home visits in the coming months, and hopefully these will be enjoyable, these will be edifying. It's not an interrogation, okay? It's not, it's not this, you know, test or anything, but it's an opportunity to encourage and to get to know you and you get to know us better. Again, this is something that we've sort of done hit or miss, and in some cases it's more, more miss than hit, unfortunately. But we recognize there's importance to active and faithful, proactive shepherding, and we're seeking to do that. But there's a problem here when we talk about elders having authority and exercising oversight and serving as examples. And that problem is that we are still, like you, only semi-sanctified. We're not done yet. We still contend with our own indwelling sins. Who wrote Romans 7? The Apostle Paul. And it was autobiographical. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Wretched man that I am. Any elder who doesn't keenly feel his own weight of sin needs to ask some hard questions. Years ago, I read a a quote. It was attributed to the Scottish preacher of the 19th century, Robert Robert Murray McShane, uh, an incredibly gifted and godly man who uh, had a a massive impact before he died at 29 years old. That'll help you, right? But on the way out of church, an older woman said, oh, Mr. McShane, you're such a godly man. And he looked at her and he said, madam, if you could see the blackness of my heart, you would spit in my face. Now, you might think that response is a little extreme. But again, it's a fearful thing to stand before people, before God's people, and say, this is what God's Word is saying to you, and recognize our own hearts betray us. So we're not surprised (laughs) 
when people notice our sins. And I hope you're not surprised. Now, hopefully not egregious, disqualifying by any stretch. But if we do life together, we're going to see each other. And we're going to see the warts. We're going to see the flaws. And we're going to do life together. And we're going to admonish and encourage and help and be patient. We are called to exercise authority within the church, meaning each elder has an individual responsibility in these relationships, but our general authority is collective, not individual. By that I mean we don't freelance. We don't make individual decisions and declarations. A question comes to us, what should we do about this, that, or whatever else? Unless you're seeking personal counsel about an individual matter, if it's a church issue, we're going to consult the other elders, and we're going to reach a consensus, and then we're going to give you an answer. No one speaks on his own authority because it's a delegated authority to the eldership. It's a collective authority, one we share together. And so when we speak, we speak as a board. When any of us preaches God's word, the word itself has authority, right? Uh, but those decisions that affect church life, those are, that's, that's a collective decision, a collective endeavor. So we've looked from a bit on the biblical teaching about authority. We've looked a bit at uh, the biblical responsibility of the elders to the membership. Now I want to talk about responsibility of members to the elders. This text is very straightforward. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, again, I'm very keenly aware that right now me standing up in front of you and saying this is what God's Word says to you can sound very self-serving. I get that. And with all my heart, I hope and pray that's not my motive or the motive of any of our elders. For me to stand up and say the Bible commands you to obey me and to submit to my authority, that is tyrannical. It's not loving and it's certainly not humble. The idea, just, just do what I say and leave me alone. What is that? That's not Christ at all. So that's not what I'm saying. That's not what your elders are saying or have asked me to say. As I said a moment ago, the man who's constantly reminding people he's in charge probably is not, right? But there are clear commands about your responsibility to your eldership, repeated several times in the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. <laughs> who likes to be admonished? Respect those who have to do that. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work and be at peace among yourselves. We don't need to unpack that to see that God is putting a responsibility on every one of us to have this mutual respect, this mutual affection, and this pursuing of peace. He says in 1 Timothy 5, one of the pastoral epistles, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, I'm not going to get into the double honor part and all of that, just the recognition that elders are called to rule well. We're called to serve. Paul, Paul's favorite designation of himself when he introduced himself in his epistles, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And we must take up that basin and towel, as Jesus told his disciples, and we must be servants. But we're also called to rule and to do so well. And people are called, the members are called to respect those who bear that responsibility. Now, that doesn't give us license to impose our will, or to be negligent, or any such thing. We're called to lead, we're called to serve, we're called to shepherd and to rule over the affairs of the church, but we're also called 
to have relationships where there is an authority there. Now, when there are significant matters, we are subject to the church vote. And uh, it's essential when we call a church meeting and say, we're going to vote on such and such. It's really important that you come and you make your voice heard. Not only in the vote, but as we give opportunities for questions. If you have questions, we want you to ask them. We don't want people going away with unaddressed issues. We want you to come talk to us individually. And we want to listen. But this is really important. And I want you to hear this carefully. Submission does not always mean agreement. I want you to think about parents. How many times have you told your child, I want you to do such and such, and your child says, why? And basically, they're holding you hostage to their willingness to agree with what you're telling them. And as parents, sometimes you'll say, because I'm the mom and I told you so, or I'm the dad and I told you so, and sometimes that ought to be enough. Not enough here in the church, okay? But I've seen kids who basically say, I don't have to obey you unless I agree with what you're saying. That's not obedience, and that's sure in submission. Submission, hopefully you do agree most of the time, but even in those times where you don't fully understand, or it's not the way you would do it, uh, unless it's a violation of your conscience and it's clearly sin, submission says, I will yield. In fact, there are different words for submit in the New Testament. One means uh, wife submitting to your husband literally means to stand under. You're not crouching in, in fear. You're taking a strong stand, but it's under the authority of your husband. But the word that's used here literally means to yield. To yield. And there are times when I've had to yield. I had a very, very, very painful experience with the elders more than 20 years ago now, almost 30 years ago, where I was adamantly convinced there was a particular uh, course of action we absolutely had to take. And the elders said, it might seem like the right thing to do, but we don't believe it's wise for these reasons. And we argued, and I persisted. And at one point, finally, one of the elders said, Jamie, we've heard you, and that's enough. And I basically had to decide, am I going to quit and walk away, or will I yield? But I couldn't stir up other people, get more people on board and go back to the elders and say, guys, reconsider. No, that's not submission. Submission is yielding, even when it's difficult. Again, it may not be what you would prefer. It may not be the way you would do it. You may think better of a better way. But there's a vital spiritual dynamic to approaching those God has placed in leadership with humility and saying, I'll submit. But not in cases of sin. In fact, in, in, in marriage ceremonies now, I, when I speak to a wife, her vow is to submit to her husband in all things lawful. Not absolute, and that applies here as well. But when, whenever biblical, legitimate biblical authority is exercised, God's people are cause, called to submit. So what do you do if you sense there's a problem in, in one of us or in us? Uh, well, again, remember, the best of men are men at best. We will fail you. We have <laughs> failed you at times. We don't ever want to fail you, but as long as we deal with continuing indwelling sin, it's somewhat inevitable. But we earnestly, I can assure you, your elders earnestly desire to faithfully discharge this responsibility God has given to us. And we want to stand before the Lord and give account without regret. 
We truly do. But there will be times we'll fail. And oftentimes that failure is in the particular area of each man's individual weaknesses. So my failures tend to be different than Pastor Mark's or Scott's or Jonathan's. Or Jonathan doesn't have any that I know of. Uh, or Dave's. Jonathan's new. <laughs> but again, I, I, I've been here for 40 years now. I haven't been on church staff, pastoral staff all that time, but most of it. And some of you have seen me make a, a real mess of things, and you've been very patient for me, with me. And I'm immensely grateful for that. I really am. But when there's a problem, when we fall short, when we let you down, what do you do? It's your responsibility to come talk to us, to let us know. Give us an opportunity to make it right. And to do so graciously and respectfully. But honestly, and in a manner that is solution Oriented. If you just come unload a, you know, dump a load of, of gripes, that's not solution oriented. I feel bad, so I want you to feel bad. Uh, or about, I feel bad, can you help me? And I think some of the reason I feel bad is things you did. Okay? That's a solution oriented approach. And it's our responsibility to listen patiently and humbly, to really listen, to be quick to listen, quick to hear, slow to speak, and certainly slow to become angry. To take what you have t- tell us and to go before the Lord and, and, and look in the mirror of God's word and ask him to make clear to us where we feel and what we must do. It's also your responsibility to be at peace with one another. First Thessalonians 5, at the end of that, it says, obey your rulers, be at peace with each other. Now, that includes being at peace with your elders because we're members of one another. It may involve seeking to restore peace when you know it's been broken. And sometimes we're afraid to do that. We'll go talk to somebody else, but we don't want to talk to the person involved because we don't trust them enough to respond well. And we need to trust each other enough to stick our necks out for each other and say the hard things, the truth in love, and to trust one another enough that when you come, we recognize that's a hard thing to do. And we listen with humility. And that goes for not only elders, it goes all the way across the board. It's uncomfortable to speak to someone about their sin. It's uncomfortable to say, you hurt my feelings. It's particularly uncomfortable, guys, for us to say that, right? We don't like to say, you hurt my feelings, because we're supposed to be strong. It's actually easier to go tell other people about it than to pursue a godly resolution. We pursue other people's sympathy. Oh, you poor thing. How dare they do that to you? It's called gossip and grumbling. That's what the children of Israel did and it, against Moses, and it led to catastrophic results. I don't expect the floor to open up and swallow anybody here, but God takes that seriously. Now, again, our church has been characterized by a carefulness for almost all of our existence, and we've been through some really, really tough Uh, challenges as a church and for the most part there's been a great carefulness about addressing these situations biblically and I'm thankful for that and that's uh, frankly that's one of the reasons that some of the accounts we've heard heard have have caught us off guard I preached on striving for peace with everyone and it seems like peace began to unravel I preached about not letting a root of bitterness grow up and defile many and it seems like discontentment 
I don't know if it's bitterness or not, but discontentment was spreading. It seemed like the very opposite was taking place. Now, please hear me. When problems arise, whether it's with one another or with the elders, that's, that's part of doing life together. Relationships are messy. We're a community of recovering sinners. James 3, 2 says, we all stumble in many ways. And then he proceeds to talk about particularly the sins of the tongue. If anybody can control his tongue, he, he becomes a perfect or mature man. This past Thursday, or Thursday week ago, I guess, uh, Our Lady's Bible study covered that text, that passage in James 3. And I've had several women come to me and say, boy, I wish everybody in the church could have heard that. Um, Helen, people might be asking you for the notes. Uh, it was apparently uh, very, very encouraging, a great blessing. But recognize, elders, we have a responsibility to you members, and members, you have a responsibility to the elders. But I want you to notice, finally, the reason the writer of Hebrews says these things. What's the reason he's employing? Again, in Hebrews 13, verse 17, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. My daughter asked me last night, why do people complain and criticize? I didn't have a real good answer. Sometimes we believe that's the only way to get things done, to, to change things that ought to be changed, but let's go back to this reason. Let it be without groaning, but with joy. I, I, I got to be honest, I, I've done some groaning this week, and so have several, several other of our elders. We have heavy hearts because we're concerned about the health of the body. It's not simply, you're making my job difficult and I don't like it, so please stop. That's not what I'm talking about. There's, there's weight, there's there's, there's, uh, 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 there's difficulty within the church, and it can spread discontentment, and it can affect the peace, the unity, and the joy of the people of God, and that concerns us. Now, got to be just realistic here. Criticism is part of the job in any leadership role. Joel Beakey wrote an excellent book called pastors and their critics. And I would say to any of you young men interested in ministry, whether you're in seminary or uh, thinking of ministry in the future, get hold of that book and read it, Pastors and Their Critics. But Beakey says, we have to be realistic about the fact that critical words, both constructive and destructive, helpful and unhelpful, come with the territory of ministry. You come with great expectations, and when those expectations aren't met, you're tempted with great Disappointment. Sometimes we deserve criticism because of our own sin, because of our own neglect, our own failures, because of our folly, our lack of wisdom. We, sometimes, some criticism we deserve, and we need to hear it. Sometimes a faithful elder can offend someone who's clinging to a, a sinful attitude. He is admonished with authority, and the person doesn't like it, and they get offended, and they criticize. How dare he say that to me? And they go tell other people, and then it spreads. This is an unkind domineering pastor when he was simply faithfully discharging what God's word said he must do. Sometimes criticism comes to us as the faithful wounds from a friend and frankly we've received that a little bit this week from several people and it's been, it's been kind and it's been helpful. But there's criticism also that's unfair that's based in half-truths. You know a little bit of the story but not the whole story that would change the context and would change the interpretation dramatically. And when we jump to conclusions based on in, uh, incomplete information, that can be terribly destructive. 
And then when someone shares with you their complaint, we can, we can take up that complaint ourselves. And we can read our own concerns into it, and suddenly it grows exponentially. Rather than taking the complaint and the concern to the people who have caused it and can do something about it, and we end up spreading uh, like a little leaven, leavening the whole lump. Proverbs twenty six seventeen says, whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. That's not a good idea, by the way. All right? And that word meddle, by the way, is, could also be translated whoever gets upset, whoever's enraged at somebody else's quarrel. The elders did, what do you, I can't believe that. And suddenly you're upset when you weren't before. And that's not necessary and it's not right. And that can lead to interpreting more actions that you might not have agreed with in a very negative and a totally incorrect way. It, it, it spreads like a virus. Now, if you have questions and concerns, again, I urge you, address them biblically. Come talk to the people you have the concerns with, whether it's one another, whether it's us. I've said many times, Matthew 18, the first step is go one-on-one to the individual involved and don't tell anybody else about it. And when I teach on church discipline, I say, I believe church discipline takes place many times every week because step one is all that's required. Someone comes to a brother or a sister or an elder and appeals, and we go, you know, you're right. And there's repentance, there's restoration, and that's the end of the matter. And the brother or sister has been won back. And that ought to be a normal part of the rhythm of a healthy church. Because we're all in the process of growing in sanctification. And we all wrestle with ongoing sin. So there, there are concerns that truly are legitimate, but, but they're not addressed properly. And that becomes destructive. Uh, let me ask this question. When is criticism unfair? It's, it's just not right. Well, first of all, is the report false? Ephesians 4.25 says we're to put aside falsehood and speak the truth to one another. Or the report is partially true, but there's important context the person doesn't know about that would change the situation entirely. Let me give you an example. There's a report that went around about authoritarian church where the pastor took a bath scale to a home visit to weigh the husband to see how he was doing with his weight management. And I, I repeated that story many times because it just sounded absolutely abhorrent. And we had a peace meeting between churches where there were some disagreements about this very issue of authoritarianism. And one dear brother stood up and he said, y'all have heard this story, right? And we all went, yeah. He goes, I'm that pastor. My church member was instructed by his doctor, for your health, you need to lose some weight here. And he asked me to do that. He asked me, bring a bath scale and help me with this. And this brother told a friend outside the church, my pastor loves me so much, he even did that. And the friend was horrified because he didn't know the whole story, and the story took legs. Now, this dear man said, I did things I shouldn't have done, but that wasn't one of them. But see, the whole story changes the interpretation. Criticism is unfair when it's shared with the wrong person or the wrong people. Did you go to the person involved, seek to restore individually? Or when that criticism is expressed maliciously, maybe, maybe you have a point, but if you don't express it with a desire to win back your brother, you simply try, you weaponize it and use it to inflict harm. That's not right. 
So is your motive to win back your brother or to tear him down? Ephesians 4.25 says that there should be, that no unwholesome word should come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up according to the need of the moment. And it's unwholesome to tear one another down. Sometimes we need to be built up by correcting things that are wrong. But it should always be with that motive of building up. And it should also be at the right time. Several of the elders met with some folks recently, and they had a concern. It was, I think, a legitimate concern possibly, but as we shared the struggle that we're going through and the, and, and, and the weight that we're carrying, they said, you know, this isn't the time to talk about that right now. We'll talk about it later. And it was very gracious and very kind. And sometimes we have to be sensitive. What is the need of the moment? Is this something that needs to be addressed right now because it's a burning issue in your heart? Is this the best time to accomplish God's goal, God's purpose to win the brother back? When I was in college, we had this little formula. When you're going to speak, have something difficult to say to someone, you ask these questions. Is it true? If it's not, don't even say it. Is it kind? Not necessarily is it nice. Sometimes things aren't very nice, but it's still kind because you're trying to fix something that's wrong. Is it necessary? There are things that are true, but it just really doesn't need to be said. Is it coming from a pure motive for that person's good and for God's glory? Is it calculated to build up or is it calculated to tear down? Is it going to contribute to peace and unity and the health of the body of Christ? And is God's glory my primary concern? Now, I've experienced some very difficult confrontation in my day to me, and it's been done with grace where I was wrong and I was exposed and I was humbled and I was restored. And that's a gift. And ultimately, I was more encouraged than discouraged because I was built up in the transaction that's how we ought to be dealing with one another. I said a few weeks ago, pastors, all too often we have hard hearts and thin skins, but we need thick skins and soft hearts because that just kind of goes with the territory. But we also need God's people to take seriously the responsibility he's laid upon you. We don't want to jump to the defense. We want to listen carefully, being quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger. Sometimes people are really hurting and it comes out in ways that may not be the best. But if we miss the fact that they're really hurting, we're not, we're not shepherding well. And so we need that sensitivity and that insight. But this unfair criticism, whether it's in content or whether it's in manner, how it takes place, it leads to groaning for your elders and that is of no advantage to you. I have a friend who's pastor of another church, and there was a brother in his church that for years, every week, every Monday, he got a call from this guy criticizing his sermon, thinking he was being helpful. And every time the phone would ring, he'd look, and he'd see caller ID, and he'd see it was this brother, and he would just groan. You don't want your pastors groaning when they see your number on caller ID, I promise. It's of no advantage to any of you, for your elders to be groaning. Now, there, there are occasions where our hearts break because that kind of goes with the territory. We deal with sin. We deal with death. We deal with sorrow. We, deal with, we, we, we weep with those who weep. We, we have to deal with some tough things. And, and, it, and it, it weighs on our hearts. It ought to. If it doesn't, we're, we don't have a heart. But you don't want your, you don't want to be a troublemaker that brings groaning to your elders needlessly. 
If there's a problem, we want to resolve it. And that is an advantage to you. Pastoral ministry ought to be a great joy. And again, I said earlier, I've been here a long time. And one of the great privileges of my life is serving this church. I mean that with all my heart. When people respond to the word, it gives us great joy. When we hear months later how the word has impacted somebody, it gives us great joy. When you love one another, that gives us great joy. When you serve, when you exercise your spiritual gifts, when we see ministries just sort of rise up organically and we find out this person has been carrying out this ministry and we didn't know anything about it, that gives us great joy. When we hear you sing God's praise with all your heart, that gives us great joy. Paul, John says in 3 John 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And there are joys beyond compare in the pastoral ministry. There truly are. And brothers and sisters, hear me. It is a great advantage to you to have joyful elders. It's great advantage that our work is done with joy and not with groaning when, when possible. My title this morning was Profitable Pastoral Relationships. That word advantage there could also be is of no profit to you. And there is great profit in a happy and healthy and peaceful and united and fruitful church. Now, we as elders have a solemn and serious responsibility in that transaction, without question. And you as members also have a responsibility. The writer of Hebrews concludes this section with verses 18 and 19. He says, pray for us, for we're sure that we have a clear conscience. Desiring to act honorably in all things, I urge you more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. What this indicates is this This writer, whoever he is, had likely been their pastor at one time, but he's not there any longer. I want to be restored to you. It's not I want to come visit you for the first time. It's one of the reasons I don't believe Paul wrote it. He wasn't a pastor to a Jewish church. But he's saying, in the meantime, the elders who are there, you need to encourage them. You need to submit. You need to seek to make their ministry a joy. And he says, and pray for us. And I would say pray for those of us who are here too. We need your prayers. I have several people who come to me from time to time and say, I want you to know I pray for you every single morning. And I say to you, I need you to pray for me every single morning. I want to end my message this morning with a quote. My brother named Daniel Ray, he wrote a little booklet called The Importance of the Local Church. And in spite of all the warts and foibles and everything else about the church. He says this, there's no group, no movement, no institution of any kind in the world which can even approach the glory, the splendor, the honor, the beauty, the magnificence, the wonder, the dignity, the excellence, the resplendency of the church of God. Would to God that we could all be filled to overflowing with a profound sense of the glory of the church as God sees it. Amen. Amen. Amen.